Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A lithograph from New York's famous Courier and Ives printing house captures the moment. The portraits of the seven men align in two rows like a sports team. In their plain black frock coats, bow ties, and splendid facial hair trimmed in a variety of manly Victorian styles, they emanate power and propriety. The image, from 1872, commemorates the first African Americans in Congress. All seven were Southerners, all Republicans. Five were former slaves. Furthest to the left is Hiram Revels. He was the senator from Mississippi, the office Jefferson Davis had quit to become president of the Confederacy. It was a second revolution. When the abolitionist Frederick Douglass saw the print, he was moved by how extraordinary it was to see a black man portrayed as, quote, something other than a monkey. The image defines the period of Reconstruction, America's, the world's, first experiment with interracial democracy. The apex of black representation came in 1875, when Blanche Bruce, an ex-slave turned plantation owner, joined Revels in the Senate. But the experiment was extinguished barely a year later. The next time two elected African Americans took their seats in the Senate, it was 2013. This is Checks and Balance. I'm John Prado, The Economist's US editor, each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, what does Reconstruction reveal about race in 2020? After the defeat of the Confederacy and the end of slavery in 1865, the period known as Reconstruction was a chance to create a multiracial democracy and for America to live up to the promise made in its founding documents. It ended in failure. But in establishing the idea that the federal government should act as a guarantor of individual liberties, it planted the seeds of that democracy. In this episode, we'll find out why America's second revolution remains unfinished and whether it ever can be. With me, as ever, to discuss all of this are Charlotte Howard, The Economist's New York bureau chief, and John Fasman, the Washington correspondent. Charlotte, what's going on in New York? I am looking forward to taking some holiday over the next few weeks, but mostly I'm looking forward to, we have a, um, a big Zoom call coming up across the paper, as we like to call it, across the newspaper. And John Fasman, I'm told, has to give a speech. You've nominated him to give a speech. And I'm just looking forward to, to to watching that because it's such a, we were joking about it earlier in the week, it's such a hard task. And he's was saying he's nervous. And I think he should just accept total failure. Because if you were speaking to, if you were speaking to Americans, you could just say something nice. But in Britain, 
being purely sincere is considered a sign of inferior intellect. So you have to be witty. You also have to kind of still be supportive and not hurt anyone's feelings. And so I kind of, I think you should just give up now, but I'm looking forward to watching him uh, flounder in about two hours. I, I think I'm just going to be sincere and say, I know you all think this is a sign of inferior intellect, but uh, <laughs> I don't know what I'm going to do. I, I still, to this right now, with the toast an hour away, have no idea what I'm going to say or do. I'm so sorry to have added to your burdens, John. I nominated you because you're funnier than I am, and I thought you'd people would enjoy I don't hearing think that's from true, you more but... than they would enjoy hearing from me. Well, that definitely is true. I mean, I can attest to that, but I still think it was, it was a bit of a mean thing to do. Um, I will, I will, I will rise to the challenge, as you always do. In fact, this episode, you've risen to the challenge. This episode is a slightly unusual one. It's a historical one. It's going to be about reconstruction, and it's based on a Christmas issue piece that John Fasman wrote this year. So every year, The Economist puts out a Christmas issue, which is filled with all the normal sorts of stories that we do about what's going on in the world at the moment, but also has an extra collection of stories on subjects that have piqued the interests of writers. And this year's issue has this one piece by John on reconstruction. So this podcast is going to be all about that topic. Let's get stuck into it. Fasman, you did a bunch of interviews for this. Who's up first? The first person we're going to hear from is Eric Foner, who is a professor at Columbia and is America's leading historian on Reconstruction. And I asked him first to just give us an introduction to what Reconstruction is for those listeners unfamiliar with it. Reconstruction is two different things. It is a time period of American history, which usually is dated from the end of the Civil War, 1865 to 1877, when the last federal troops were removed from the South. It's also, I think, important to think of it as a historical process, and particularly how the country tries to come to terms with the abolition of slavery and the uh, status now of four million former slaves who are now free people in America. Abolition was not synonymous with a belief in positive racial equality, right? I think most people assume that, that abolition means not just ending slavery, but giving African Americans the full civil, social, and political rights of white people. But that was not the case, right? Well, not not for everybody. The radical Republicans and abolitionists believed, yes, that being free meant equality. But, you know, one of the things about Reconstruction is it's a very dynamic period. People who in 1865 said, forget it, black people are too ignorant or uneducated or whatever to vote, three years later are adding an amendment to the Constitution giving black men the right to vote. What did that dynamism look like at what radical Republicans would consider its most desirable? I'm thinking now of the of the number of African-American elected officials of black political mobilization, that sort of thing. Well, in 1867, Congress got fed up, so fed up with Andrew Johnson, who was just a deeply racist president and the all white governments he created in the South, that they said, we need new governments in the South with African-American men voting and holding office. And this launched what we call radical reconstruction. And that's the most dynamic moment. Hundreds of thousands of African-Americans flocked to the polls to vote. By my estimate, about 2,000 black men served in some public office in the 10 years between 1867 and 1877. There had never been any black men in public office in the North or South, really, before the uh, Civil War. But there was all sorts of other dynamic developments, the creation of black churches, the first schools set up, the creation of a whole social world of freedom. 
can you talk a bit about how it was taken away, how Reconstruction started losing support in the North and the South and why? You know, there's a lot of violence in the South. The Ku Klux Klan and groups like that use what you'd have to call, using today's language, terrorism, in order to assassinate local officials, to intimidate people so they don't vote, burning schools for black people, things like that. Northerners began to get tired of intervention in the South, of the fact that there was all this turmoil. 1873, a serious worldwide economic depression hit, the Panic of 1873, and that really shifted attention away from Reconstruction to economic recovery. Also, even during Reconstruction, the Supreme Court is retreating from the radical vision of a very robust federal government enforcing the rights of black people in the South. Three constitutional amendments are enacted in Reconstruction. The 13th abolished slavery. The 14th created the notion of equality before the law for all, regardless of race. And the 15th tried to guarantee the right to vote. But the Supreme Court very quickly put restrictions on what the federal government can do to protect the basic rights of uh, African-Americans. John, I'm really pleased you've written this piece in The Christmas Issue because I think Reconstruction is, number one, one of the most fascinating periods of American history, and number two, slightly neglected, certainly compared with some of the other big events of American history. I mean, I think if you had to pick a few, the periods that probably get studied and talked about most are the first founding and the founding fathers and all that business, the Civil War and the Civil Rights Era. And Reconstruction gets forgotten a little bit, even though, in my mind, it's as significant as those three other events. So question for you, do you agree that Reconstruction tends to get rather overlooked? And if so, why is that? I do think it tends to get overlooked. I think the reason is because it's it's a painful failure. It was a genuine effort to create a multiracial democracy. It didn't do so. And the failure of Reconstruction led to almost a century of Jim Crow and and legal segregation. So I think that's why. The the lessons to be drawn from it are painful to contemplate and painful to remember, but they're, they're essential. One of the things that I was most struck by in reading your piece for the Christmas issue was the way that Reconstruction was taught, particularly through the 50s and even early 60s. And the idea that part of why it failed is because Black people were not deemed to be up to the task of fulfilling their civic duty. And that really struck me that the way that it was then embedded into modern education systems was a story about Black failure rather than a story of the failure of American white people. And I I was really struck by that. That's a really good point. And if you look back at the opposition to the civil rights era in the 1950s and the 1960s, those conservatives who opposed extending full civil rights to African-Americans often look back to Reconstruction and said, well, if you look at the period then, it's clear that African-Americans are unable to exercise the same rights as the rest of us Americans. But John, is it clear that, I mean, Reconstruction was a failure because it ended, right? And as you say, proper Reconstruction had to wait almost a century to to come along. But was it really a failure? I mean, how effective were those first African-American representatives to make it into Congress, the Senate, um, and to govern their own states? Well, one of the stories that got told about it 
in the early 20th century, when, as Charlotte points out, the Dunning School was prevalent. That's named for a professor at Columbia who propounded the view that the real shame of Reconstruction was not that it failed to create a multiracial democracy, it's that it was tried, right? And one of the stories told then was that African-American officeholders were corrupt, and that was one of the reasons it failed. Henry Louis Gates, who's a prominent academic who has done, among other things, a TV series on Reconstruction, talks about learning about Reconstruction when he was a child in school and saying, the few Black kids in my class would put this textbook over our faces and slink down in our chairs because it was all so embarrassing. And so you see the way that this myth of of Reconstruction and why it failed persisted for a really long time. Talk us through the ending of it because it was quite dramatic. It was both violent and a reminder of the way that political pragmatism can stymie American ideals. So a lot of the white South never accepted Reconstruction full stop. And as the period progressed, starting the late 60s and early 70s, there was a wave of racist terrorism. As Professor Foner pointed out, the Ku Klux Klan and groups like Knights of the White Camellia massacred a lot of Republicans, a lot of African-Americans, a lot of whites believed to be helping them. And that bled support. That made the Reconstruction state governments look weak. In addition, you had a worldwide economic crisis in 1873 that drew political attention away from the task of Reconstruction. And then the 1876 presidential election, the results were disputed. And as a compromise, Rutherford B. Hayes, who eventually took office, got Southern support in exchange for effectively ending federal reconstruction. So the troops, the federal troops who were there to enforce it, went back to their barracks. And then reconstruction didn't exactly end overnight, but over the next 10 or 20 years, the gains made during reconstruction were erased and laws were passed that came to be known as Jim Crow laws, effectively legal segregation in public accommodations, as well as convict leasing and debt peonage, which functioned as a sort of second slavery in practice. All right, thanks both. We'll ask what Reconstruction means these days in just a moment. First, a reminder, if you're not already an Economist subscriber, you really ought to be. It's easy to sign up. You'll find the best offers at economist.com slash 2020 election pod. This week, there's a double holiday issue to keep you entertained. There are pieces in that, including one on the revolution underway in girlhood, a piece on hiking on Mars and a history of homeworking as well, in addition to John Fasman's story about reconstruction. That link again, economist.com slash 2020 election pod. It's in the notes for this episode. So let's talk a bit more about why reconstruction is so relevant to America's current struggles. Fasman, who else have you been speaking to? So one of the other people I talked to is Kimberly Crenshaw, who is a hugely influential lawyer, feminist scholar, campaigner, UCLA professor, and a co-founder of the African-American Policy Forum. I was lucky enough to get some time with her this week to hear her take on the unfinished business of Reconstruction. So this is a package of ideas that fundamentally could have changed the complexion of American society. And for a very short period of time, uh, it did that. That's what got lost when the Supreme Court overturned case after case after case and basically shut down the possibility that this new vision of American citizenship would actually take root and flourish. And if you knew the story of Reconstruction, if you knew how the Supreme Court absolutely gutted what was the consequence of this 
bloody civil war, then you'd be much more concerned about what's happening in the Supreme Court right now. Do you view Trump's presidency as a sort of redemption presidency? Do you think that's a fair way to think of it? If people understand redemption correctly, so. <laughs> right, sorry, a redemption in the in, in the reconstruction sense, yeah. So let, let's just lay that out so people are clear. When we talk about redemption, it is a mad inversion of the idea of redemption. Redemption was the let's stay together moment that the white North and the white South said, we're going to let bygones be bygones. And basically what that meant for the South is that the North was going to allow the Southern white power structure to do whatever they needed to do, whatever they wanted to do to retain, regain and reinforce white supremacy. And that included murders. Um, it inc- included programs. It, it, it included taking over state governments and shooting people as they came out of courthouses. Um, it was a counter revolution that was bloody and it was called redemption. What I want to add to that as well is there was a redemption jurisprudence. The Supreme Court basically saying that there were no rights that were being violated in killing Black people. So all of these things were part of redemption, the the deal, the legal jurisprudence, and then finally the narrative coming out of it, redemption historiography that tells us that Mm -hmm. these were disastrous moments. We're going to bury the story along with the countless number of bodies in the soil of the South. So when we ask what the parallel is today, yes, there is very much a sense that the coming together of a broad white electorate, majority of white people voting for a person who says, let's make America great again. Well, what's the great that he's talking about? Was the great before Barack Obama. It's the great before the civil rights movement. It's the great before we had to Think about the fact that this has always been a country made up of more than just white people born on these shores. So I, I, I think the historical parallel is absolutely on point. The only reason it doesn't do more work is because people don't know that history. What strands do we pick up now to regain that Reconstruction spirit, to move beyond the patterns that we're in now? Well, I, I would say that the gestures that are being made now by the new administration. This is an administration that had to overcome obstacles that no other president-elect has ever had to overcome. And it's partly because the ideology of never die, never give up, is so interwoven with the politics of redemption with the lost cause ideology that said, actually, you know, the South didn't lose because they were on the wrong side of moral history. They fought the good fight. They were just overwhelmed. There, there are elements of this never say dieism that are so connected up to white supremacy. And the worry that many students of Reconstruction have right now is that this new moment is going to be an old moment that we've seen before. You know, the the olive branch is going to be, let's let bygones be bygones. And millions of people on the other side are not even thinking that this is a time for reconciliation. You cannot negotiate your way out of white supremacy. And unless our 
um, existing uh, administration or administration to come really squarely can confront that, it feels like we may be going down a rabbit hole again. And many of us are very concerned and committed to putting the history of the country in front of us so we don't repeat it again. Charlotte, there's a great Mark Twain quote, history doesn't repeat, it rhymes. What do you think the rhymes are between the Reconstruction era and and contemporary American politics? Well, I guess there's a fundamental question, which is why are we talking about Reconstruction at the moment, which Kimberly Crenshaw touched on a bit. And I think there are a few reasons. One is there's this very active debate within American culture with differing views depending on what party you're in, which is whether racism in America is alive and well or not, um, with Democrats broadly thinking that racism remains a huge problem and that systemic racism, which doesn't necessarily mean that individuals are racist, but rather that systems operate in a racist way, um, that, that that remains a big problem in American life. And there are people who take issue with that idea. One of the things that I found was most resonant or that rhymed for me in reading more about Reconstruction and the way that Black people were excluded from institutions in the South is what you've seen really since 2013 when the Supreme Court overturned a key part of the Voting Rights Act. The the Supreme Court essentially said that no longer did, uh, there were about nine states, they included Alabama, Alaska, Arizona, Georgia, Louisiana, Mississippi, South Carolina, Texas, and Virginia, as well as many counties and municipalities. And they needed to have federal oversight if they changed voting laws. And that had been part of the Voting Rights Act since 1965 that had been carried forward. And uh, the Supreme Court overturned that. And then in the wake of, of that decision, you saw different states try to impose various new rules, supposedly to fight voter fraud. One of the most egregious was in North Carolina, where they passed a set of voter ID requirements that was eventually overturned by an appeals court, and then it was not upheld by the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court didn't even consider the case. The appeals court said that the law, which invalidated various forms of uh, of identification as a means to affirm your identity when you want to vote, that it targeted African-Americans with almost surgical precision. It basically looked at various forms that Black people were likely to have, including IDs that were issued to government employees, to students, and to people receiving public assistance, and said that those weren't valid. So that's one instance. But there were many other states. There was a law in Texas. Um, of course, Stacey Abrams has talked about various efforts in Georgia to discriminate against voters of color. And so that's, for me, the really big, one of the biggest instances in which you see states now taking steps that are supposedly in the name of upholding the integrity of elections, but that actually undermines people's access to democracy. John, one of the things we haven't talked about yet is the incredible violence of Reconstruction, which outside the Civil War is the most violent period of American history. I think, and violence characterized by a particularly horrible spectacle of lynching. It's also what we would today call terrorism, right? That is violence carried out against noncombatants to send a political message. One of the most gruesome events in Reconstruction, which I wrote about in my piece, was known as the Colfax Massacre. That followed disputed elections in 1873, in which Republicans claimed victory. And bear in mind that 
Republicans were the party of Lincoln and emancipation, and white Democrats in the South were the party of resistance to Reconstruction. Republicans claimed victory in local elections and took up positions in the county courthouse. A group of armed Democrats marched into Colfax. Republicans called for reinforcements to support them. Most Republicans in Colfax at the time were African-Americans. And there was a firefight that turned into a massacre. The white Democrats were better armed. Some of the Republicans came out of the courthouse to surrender, and they were taken into the woods and shot dead. People were also shot down as they fled. About 150 African-American Louisianans died that day. But that was not an isolated incident. And it was events like that across the South that inculcated an atmosphere of fear, in which in 1876, Republicans felt that in much of the South, it wasn't even safe for them to campaign. So Reconstruction fundamentally was an era in which the terrorists won. Yeah, there's the terrorism wins moral of the story, which is so depressing about Reconstruction. But there are some other more positive legacies of Reconstruction. I mean, I remember doing a reporting trip in northern Alabama when I was writing a story about race and the Republican Party in 2017. And I was in an entirely white town in northern Alabama, populated by the descendants of German migrants. And someone mentioned to me that there was a town nearby called Colony, which was entirely African-American. So I thought that sounded pretty interesting. It was a really a rural settlement in northern Alabama. I went there, went around and spoke to a whole load of people living there in Colony, Alabama. It was entirely African-American. And that was populated by the descendants of those folks who'd been granted 40 acres and a mule by the Freedmen's Bureau as part of Reconstruction which was one of the few ways in which the federal government tried to make amends for the legacy of slavery at the time. And there were all these people still living in this settlement that had been created as a part of a new free black South in the 1860s or 1870s. It's pretty remarkable. There are still quite a lot of places like this in the South. All right, thank you both. We'll be back to discuss how the constitutional legacy of Reconstruction may offer some hope for the future. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Reconstruction has a complicated legacy, as we've discussed, but let's focus specifically on the law to finish off. It's a good place to wrap up the discussion of Reconstruction because that really is one of the few strands of hope that comes through. The last person I spoke to for the story was Otterson Francois, who is a Georgetown law professor. He told me that of the three constitutional amendments passed during Reconstruction, the 14th is the one with the most relevance today. And it's probably the most revolutionary because it established equality before the law for the first time. I think it was clearly understood at the time that the most radical portion of the 14th Amendment was this notion of citizenship. And indeed, in some segments of popular culture, once the 14th Amendment was ratified, Black people came to be known almost as a slur as 14th Amendment people. Whites would argue 
that there were people, there were persons as a natural fact, but that black humanity, black people being people as opposed to things only came about because of the law. But the thing is that I think also for, for black people, they always understood also the radical import of the 14th Amendment, hence the reason why they fought so hard for its passage in the teeth of tremendous amount of violence. The Civil Rights Act of 1875 may be the most significant piece of civil rights legislation until the mid-60s, but it's, it's relatively unknown now. Can you just outline a bit of what it was, what it did, how it came to be? The original version of the act would have outlawed racial segregation in government settings. It would have prohibited racial segregation in public schools, which is very significant. It was the very first piece of legislation in Congress that was enacted at the time where Black people were there. It was the very first time when we were in the room where it happened. By 75, 1875, you have approximately 15 Black people in the room who are debating the act. And the vision that they present is, is a radical one. It was an act that signified a choice, that we could either be a multiracial society or we could be an apartheid state. To this day, we are living with the consequences of the failure of the act. And one of the things also I think that is important to understand about the act in particular and reconstruction in general is how much people living at that time were trying, at least some anyway, to build a new world. For a moment, it was possible. Is it possible again? I don't know. I don't know. I think the interesting thing about Reconstruction, at least to me, is that we were poised between the Civil War and Jim Crow. We were poised between the charnel house of Gettysburg and what would eventually become the strange fruits hanging from southern trees during the 1930s. And we were poised between the cotton plantations of slavery and what would become segregated drinking fountains. And in that so-called liminal space, that liminal moment that barely lasted 15 years, we had a vision of what could be possible. And then it stopped. That I think is what makes Reconstruction so unique and so interesting. So, John, as Addison Francois said there, one of the important laws to come out of Reconstruction is the 14th Amendment, which extends citizenship to everybody born in America, so making good on the self-evident truths of life, liberty, etc. in the original Constitution. But within the 14th Amendment, there are a series of clauses, including the Equal Protection Clause, which has proved really important in a bunch of subsequent Supreme Court judgments. Can you talk a little bit about the Equal Protection Clause and why it's so important? Yeah, the Equal Protection Clause comes in the first section of the amendment. The 14th Amendment is the longest amendment in the Constitution. It includes a section on debt. It includes two sections on the age of representatives. But the important part is the first section. 
And that has two planks. The first one is the is the birthright citizen plank, which says that everyone born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof is a citizen of the United States. There's also the privileges and immunities clause, which says that no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. Then there's the due process clause. And finally is the Equal Protection Clause, which says that states cannot deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. Now, it took a while for that amendment to sort of get off the ground. There were cases in the 1870s in which the court ruled that the Due Process Clause applied only to state action, not to the actions of individuals, right? So it didn't give an individual the right to sue a business owner for discrimination. In 1896, in one of the most shameful decisions in Supreme Court history, the court held that the Equal Protection Clause did not bar legal segregation, that separate but equal was acceptable. That lasted until 1954, when the court struck down segregation in public schooling using the Equal Protection Clause. It essentially reversed its interpretation and held it to a broader standard, which is where it has been held since. The 14th Amendment was also used to strike down bans on same-sex marriage. The 14th Amendment has since then become a strong anti-discrimination tool. It has become a way that the court has recognized that the federal government essentially acts as a guarantor of liberties to individual citizens. The 14th Amendment is so central to American life that it continues to resurface, and the meaning of the 14th Amendment continues to resurface both in political debate and in cases before the Supreme Court. So just November 30th, a few weeks ago, the Trump administration's case about the census and whether the census should or shouldn't count non-citizens in its work to apportion congressional seats, that is about the 14th Amendment and who the 14th Amendment guarantees rights to. Uh, That was heard, again, just, just a few weeks ago. In the 14th Amendment, it talks about the disqualification of election officials who have quote, engaged in insurrection or rebellion, two-thirds of House Republicans supported a lawsuit to overturn the election. So now you have some Democrats in Congress saying that those people violate the 14th Amendment and they should be disqualified. It's just very, very active in all areas of American life. And John, how about the 1866 Civil Rights Act, which, as you say, is much less well-known than the 1964 one? Why does that continue to be important? So the 1866 Civil Rights Act really dealt with some granular issues of law and economic equality. It says that citizens, regardless of race, have equal rights to make an enforced contract, to sue and be sued, to testify in court, and they could inherit and sell property. All of that seems very basic now. It wasn't at the time. One of the most poignant parts of the interview with Professor Francois we just heard, I think, is this comment on what battles would not have had to have been fought had Reconstruction not failed, which is not to say that You know, in 1954, we wouldn't have been fighting about other issues regarding civil rights, but we wouldn't have had to fight over school desegregation because schools would already have been desegregated. One of the most painful parts of studying Reconstruction is thinking about what this country would have looked like had Reconstruction succeeded. Well, that's right. And that's something that comes through very strongly in the piece you've written in this week's issue, in the Christmas issue. Please do go and read it. It's fantastic. Write to us. Let us know what you think. But before I let you guys go off on your holidays, we have a quiz. And our theme this week is, naturally enough, the intersection of Reconstruction and Christmas. The Civil War general, Ulysses Grant, was elected president at the height of the Reconstruction period. How did he change the way America celebrates Christmas? Um, Is he the first president to have a tree? That's a good factoid. No, John Fassman, that was actually Benjamin Harrison. (laughs) (laughs) Our producer, uh, 
said it was wrong and then take he take credit <laughs> just blatant cheating I can't deal with blatant cheating Charlotte that's very impressive but do you actually have the answer to the question um of course not let me think how did he change the way this of maybe did we have boxing day before and then he did away with boxing day or something I like that. It's, it's close. He made Christmas Day a public holiday yeah. in 1870. Grant also made New Year's Day, the 4th of July, and Thanksgiving holidays for federal employees. General Grant is also the name of the only living thing to be designated a national monument. The giant sequoia is known as the nation's Christmas tree, thanks to Calvin Coolidge. At 267 feet, the tree in California's King Canyon National Park is one of the world's tallest. It's also one of the world's oldest organisms. How old is it? Mm. 800 years? Yeah, I was going to do 500. It is 3,000 years old. That's incredible. Wow, that's cool. I've never been to the Redwood Forest. I'd like to go. Go check it out next time you're there. If if we're ever allowed to travel again, go check it out. It is awesome in the real sense of the word awesome. You should definitely go. Yeah. Yeah, I would love to. We have to sign off for this party now. John Pazman, you will do a great job. I look forward to your speech and all the nice things that you'll say about me and John Prito. It's going to be nice and short. All right. Thank you, Charlotte. Thank you, John. Thanks, John. Thank you. And thanks very much for listening. Radio at economist.com is the email if you want to get in touch over the holidays. One quick thing before I go, astute listeners might have noticed that I had a brief brain freeze in last week's episode and referred to Stacey Abrams' 2018 Senate campaign. It was, of course, her gubernatorial campaign. Sorry about that. I also had a brain freeze not picking that up at the time, and so it's probably a good thing that we're taking a break next week. We'll be back on the 1st of January with another special episode. But before signing off for 2020, I want to say a huge thank you to everyone who's put so much work into making this podcast a success since we started out in January. Erica Shin, Noor Abraham, Elizabeth Peet, Milton Vargas, Laura Clark, Isabel Owen, Nico Ruffaust, John Shields, Sandra Shmuley, Anne McElvoy, and thanks to Louis Nankamenel and Daniel Lloyd-Evans for our amazing theme tune once again. We'll have more Checks and Balance next year. <laughs> <laughs>